You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. serving on the prayer team and today's scripture passage is from Isaiah 49 8 through 16 from the NIV this is what the Lord says in the time of my favor I will answer you and in the day of salvation I will help you I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances to say to the captives come out And to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. This is God's word. Thank you, Nancy. We today turn the corner into the Advent season where we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, fulfilling God's promise to be with us. But in what ways is God with us? That's the question we're going to be exploring over the coming weeks, beginning with how God is with us in our waiting. Let me pray for us now that God would open our hearts as we open his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not only made great promises but you keep your promises. I pray that you would give us hearts to know and understand the ways in which you have in Jesus Christ and that that would bring great transformation to our own lives. I pray for those who are wrestling or struggling right now in a season of waiting. I pray that they would learn to trust in you I pray for those who do not yet know you, that today they would come to understand and believe that you are the true hope of this world. Spirit of God, speak to us all. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, if I'm honest, I think waiting is the worst. I absolutely hate waiting. I see a few nodding heads. And as we approach the end of the year, many of us find ourselves in a season of waiting. Waiting for important things to happen in our lives. Waiting for change to happen. 
Some of you are waiting for change to happen in your work or your job or your finances. Others may be waiting to see change happen within our marriages or our friendships. Many of us are waiting to see change happen in our world. We're also waiting to see change happen within our own selves. And perhaps in the midst of that waiting, we carry with us a sense of unmet expectation an unfulfilled promise that has left us with that general feeling of being forgotten. That's how many people describe how they feel when they think about God. I hear it often. I feel forgotten by God. Where is he? What am I waiting for? Why am I even waiting at all? Perhaps that's how you feel. And in this time, you're like, well, what's going to happen? You know, there's that phrase, time heals all wounds. That's rubbish. Time doesn't heal wounds. Time doesn't heal anything. It's what happens in time that can make us or break us. It's what happens in time that can change things. All of us will wait. The question is, how will we wait? And will we become better or bitter in our waiting? See, for this reason, many authors have referred to waiting as a school. And like school, the point is not just to finish, it's to actually learn something, as I was reminded when I was young. Andrew Murray describes it like this, a great Christian writer. He says, at our first entrance into the school of waiting upon God, The heart is mainly set on the blessings which we wait for. Yet, God graciously uses our needs and desires to help to educate us for something higher than we were thinking of when we began. See, it's not just if we wait or getting to the end of our waiting. It's will we be changed in our waiting. Waiting is one of the most prominent themes in the Bible. In fact, much of the Old Testament is about waiting for the promise of God, the promise of a rescuer who will set the world right. And in the Christmas season, we celebrate the arrival of that promise in Jesus Christ. The word Advent means simply that, arrival. But even so, the story of waiting does not end there. We today look forward to and await for Christ to come again. And therefore, we wait in many of the ways that people have waited long before us. And we ask many of the same questions. Where is God? What's he gonna do about all this? Maybe you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. You're like, well, what, what is even the hope for like, what's happening in my life and in the world around us? Like, What exactly does Christianity say I'm waiting for? But even if you are a Christian, you still wrestle with many of these same questions. And they're the same questions that the nation of Israel was asking in Isaiah chapter 49, hundreds of years before the time of Christ. So this morning, what is it that we need to learn in order to wait well and to be changed in our waiting? 
We're going to look specifically at the last three verses of our scripture reading, verses 14, 15, and 16, where we see three movements. There's a complaint from Israel to God. God provides an answer. And then an evidence. And those three movements provide for us three lessons, three ways in which you and I must wait if we're going to be changed in our waiting. Number one, you must wait with honesty. In whatever season of waiting, you must wait with honesty. Did you notice the dramatic change in the text as it was being read a moment ago? The whole chapter contains these incredible cosmic promises of renewal and restoration, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. God will restore the nations. He'll set the captives free. He'll bring people out of darkness. He will renew our broken world. And how do the people of Israel respond? I'm depressed. (laughs) Verse 14, but Zion said, after all this, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Now, I relate with Israel here. Isn't it amazing how, if you're dramatic like me, you could have the experience of a thousand good things on any given day, but all it takes is one trial to feel like everything is wrong. Everything could be going great on this Sunday, and then all of a sudden one thing goes wrong, and you're like, I have no hope. It's all over. Or you could hear a thousand and one positive words of affirmation and encouragement, but all it takes is one statement from a friend or family member and everything is ruined. Because the thing that is immediately in front of us tends to consume us. So the prophet Isaiah is speaking to Israel during a time of failed kings and oppressive rulers. Israel at this time is facing exile. Beginning with the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, they overtook Jerusalem. They tore down the walls and the people were carried away into captivity. Isaiah is God's prophet sent to tell the people what God is going to do about it and why it all happened in the first place. Now, in the midst of that, Israel says, the Lord has forsaken me. Why is it that they are able to even say that? Why are these words even recorded? See, in the Bible, there is an acknowledgement of what's really going on. There is a realism. And then from the human perspective, there's an honest cry or an honest prayer. We see it all throughout scripture and we see it here in verse 14. It's not the whole recipe for waiting, but it's an important ingredient that we, when we wait, wait with honesty. Why? Because God is not unaware of what is happening. God is not afraid of our honesty. In fact, through the whole book of Isaiah, he's reminded the people of Israel why it all happened in the first place. See, the nation of Israel was called of God to be a light to the world, a blessing to the world, but they largely failed in their vocation. 
their sin and their rebellion had been laid out before them. And you read the book of Isaiah, it's there over and over again. And they were warned about, and they finally would see the results of their rebellion. Brokenness, ruin, destruction, captivity. The nation would be carried away. But in the midst of that, God also promises great restoration, not only for them, but for the world. See, God is not surprised. He knows what's gone wrong. And he listens to our cry. He listens even to our despair. One of the things that's so striking to me about reading the Bible, particularly the Psalms or other passages like that where you have the complaint of people is that it's there at all. That's surprising. God listens to and attends to the despondent with a listening ear. It's not as if God is in heaven and we're like, God, I'm going to tell you how I feel. Uh, 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 uh. No, not going to listen. God listens and attends to the despondent. What are they saying here in verse 14? God has forsaken me. God has forgotten me. That is, God, you haven't come through. That's how I feel. And I don't really think that you care. There's a brutal honesty in Israel's cry. Now, why do they think this? Because in the present moment, they only saw destruction. The walls, the ruined walls, were a reminder of the destruction they were living in. To put it another way, they only saw a continuation of their bad situation. Isn't that how it often is when things are going bad? Like you just can't see a way out. You're like, no, it's always going to be bad. It's bad right now. It's going to be bad forever. That's what they saw a continuation of their bad situation. It's not that they didn't believe in God. They just began to doubt that he would do anything about it. The sight of their captivity day after day led them to doubt whether or not God would come through on his promise. The doubt crept in and the despair soon followed. See, we all know that it's one thing to believe something that it's true but it also doesn't feel real to our hearts. The shocking thing is that the Bible invites us to be honest about all of this. It's one of the reasons why this complaint is recorded here from Israel in verse 14. The Bible is the most honest book that you will ever read. Now, this may come as a surprise to those of us who assume that Christianity can't handle realism. See, a lot of people, they come to church thinking that it's all a game. You just wear a mask like, hey, how's it going, brother? Oh, it's fine, sister, how are you? Amazing, ah. Like that's all Christian, oh, the song's about to start, you know, clap hands, hey. We assume that faith calls us to bury our heads in the sand. But whether you're new or you've been in the church world for a long time, you need to know that the Bible never asks us to pretend. We're never asked to fake it until we make it. 
Let me give you a New Testament example of this. The Apostle Paul. The Psalms, of course, in the Old Testament are filled with this. But even in the New Testament, we have examples of brutal honesty expressing how people felt in the moment of their discouragement. Paul the Apostle, one of the great leaders of the early church, wrote a third of the New Testament. He found himself in places of despair and he was honest about it. And one of the places you'll find this is in his letter to the Corinthian church, his second letter, where he writes this, chapter one, verse eight through nine. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. <gasps> Paul, you can't say that. He did. How did Paul feel? He felt as if he was going to die. Now, for someone as dramatic as myself, I'm like, I feel seen. Because <laughs> oftentimes in the difficult seasons of my life, that's how I feel. And if you know me, I'm very verbally expressive. In fact, one of my old employees at Reality Lab reminded me recently, Tim used to just walk up and down the halls of our office in the crazy days of Reality Lab just saying, I'm gonna die. In fact, on one Sunday morning, I was really sick. It was a horrible season. It was a hard season of life and ministry, and I was so ill, and I had no one to fill the pulpit for me, so I had to preach. So I was just hiding in the back, and then I'd come out, and i like preach. I felt so miserable. So after I go out and I do the benediction, I'm like, may the Lord bless you and keep you. I walk to the backstage, and I just said so loud, I want to die. The problem was my microphone was still on to a room full of a thousand people in this auditorium. And I got all these emails like, I'm worried about Pastor Tim. <laughs> so to someone like me, when I'm in this time where things are so difficult, I read the words of Paul and I'm like, he knows. I read verse 14 of Isaiah 49, I'm like, hey, I'm not judgy over Israel. Like, I get it. When I read the Psalms, like, oh. See, in my early years of Christianity, and even at times as a Christian leader, I, I felt like I had this need to, like, put on a mask or put on a front when things were difficult. Like, you know, fearless leader. Hey, I got, everything's gonna be fine. Even to my family at times. Like, hey, okay, we're all gonna be good. We're all gonna be good. And then I just go in the bathroom, get in the shower, and cry. Anyone cry in the shower? Don't raise your hand. Some of you are like, <laughs> I appreciate your transparency in this place. It's a safe place. <laughs> I read the Psalms and David's like, I wept on my couch all night long. I'm like, David's my boy. He understands. See, when you wait, what God is not calling you to do is pretend to be like, oh, I can't go to God right now in my grief or my despair. So I gotta like, clean up my act, and then I can go pray, and then I can go talk to God. No. Even the recording of Israel's complaint here shows us that it's not the whole recipe. There's more lessons we need to learn. But one of the ingredients is to wait with honesty. Israel felt forgotten, and they felt forsaken. 
The occasion for this complaint, in many ways, is very much ours when we endure a long season of suffering. And we begin to think, I thought things would change by now. Why hasn't God answered my prayer yet? And when I look around, it feels like God has forsaken me. You need to know, friend, that in that season, in that moment, with that honesty, God listens. It is good for you to pour out your soul to God. Bring your cares to him. For some of you, that might make you feel very uncomfortable. You're like, there's more to the story. Yes, there is. And thank you for raising that objection because that leads to the second point. Number one, you need to wait with honesty. But number two, you must wait with humility. This is the second ingredient. So on the one hand, we, need, we can be honest. God, I feel like I'm in the depths of despair. I feel like I'm sentenced to death. I feel forgotten. I feel forsaken. When I look around at everything, thank you that I can bring my complaint to you with honesty. That's the first lesson. But the second is also important. You must wait with humility. Honesty is willing to tell the truth about how we feel about what's going on around us. But humility is the willingness to listen to the truth of God. So notice what's happening here. There's like tears and truth. There's emotional honesty, but then we need biblical integrity. Both are important. So Israel's complaint is included there in verse 14, but then God answers. See, some of you just, you stop with honesty. God, you've forgotten me. I'm out. Conversation over. Not going to church today. Oh, you need some humility. Will you listen to what God has to say on the matter? Because God answers, and when he does, sometimes he'll even argue with you, as he does with Israel. And when he does... He uses one of the strongest images of personal attachment possible in the human realm. Look at verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? You say I've forgotten you? Let me use an example. The example of a mother with her nursing child which is several things. That love is is mindful, it is helpful, it's relational, and it's unconditional. Think about what a nursing mother is doing. It's mindful. There are few women who would forget they have a nursing child, right? You don't see that happen too often here at church. You know, you're caught up in a conversation. You know, those of you nursing mothers here, and you're like, oh, right, I gotta go. I I have a baby. Totally forgot. (laughs) usually don't forget, and the child usually won't let you forget. It's part of parenthood. The love of a mother is also helpful. It's a love that meets the need of the child. It's relational. It's very intimate, and it's unconditional. The child did nothing to deserve the mother's love. Far from being forgotten is Israel. And that's remarkable, and here's why God's word should produce some humility within us. In our honesty about how we feel, 
we should not act as if we know the whole picture. We should not act as if we know the whole story. We all know that in our seasons of waiting, many of us, if you're like me, you jump to conclusions. I was reminded of this when I read a book a while back and it was talking about the importance of not jumping to conclusions in your relationships with others. And the author told a story about a woman who had her hip operated on by a very prominent surgeon. And when she had her first follow-up appointment scheduled after the operation, she showed up in great pain, only to find that the receptionist told her the bad news. Her doctor had unexpectedly extended his vacation. So what did she imagine? She imagined her doctor just going wild, just in the Caribbean, just like, oh, I'm going to take another two weeks, even though I have all these patients. Make it three weeks. She just imagined for several weeks, just he's out there partying, he's loving his life, he's getting a tan, you know, pina coladas on the beach, like how dare he? So she thought over those few weeks as she waited for her delayed appointment, she thought about all the things she was gonna tell to her. She's, I'm gonna give him a piece of my mind. So finally, when her delayed follow-up appointment finally came, She got into the room with her doctor, and she asked, how was your vacation, doctor? And he responded, it was wonderful. And she said, I'll bet it was. But before she could get in another word, he said, it was actually a working vacation. I was setting up hospitals in Bosnia. Do you know those people do not have medical aid or support or care? The need was so great that we just had to extend our trip. And she was like, oh, okay. Not in the Caribbean. He was in Bosnia setting up a hospital for needy people. And when I read that, I reflected on all the ways that I jumped to conclusions when it comes to God. Acting as if I know all the facts. I know the story. See, on the one hand, we wait with honesty. There's an emotional honesty the Bible invites us to. But then there's this theological integrity. I got to humble myself and remember, I am not God. I don't know everything. And so we need to be careful about our presumption in a time of waiting. See, many of us, we we have all these assumptions like, okay, when I'm struggling, God needs to immediately answer my prayers, generally within five minutes. And if he doesn't, he doesn't care. We need to come to the word of God and allow the truth to challenge our assumptions in our season of waiting. And that brings forth great humility. God doubles down on this. He says, listen, after beautifully describing a mother's love for a nursing infant, you would think that God's next point is, my love is just like that. But he doesn't. He uses a statement of contrast. Notice how the verse ends. Though she may forget, I will never forget you. That is astounding. He uses like one of the greatest pictures of a, committed human relationship that you could possibly think of. It's as if he's saying to us, friends, 
I want you to think right now the greatest love and faithfulness that you can experience in the human realm. And now I want you to go farther because even if that mother does forget, if not by her will, then by her weakness, even if one of the greatest pictures of love in the human realm breaks down, my love never will. He argues. For those of us who feel like, you know what, God hasn't come through for me. And many of those feelings perhaps are based on other humans not coming through for us. And that is a very real lived experience. But we cannot project their weakness or failure onto God. As David would say in Psalm 27 verse 10, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. What's David doing? He's bringing his emotional honesty to the truth of God. So God makes an argument to Israel as he would to us when we think that he's forgotten us or forsaken us. He says, in a greater way, my love is mindful. I am always aware of you, more so than a nursing mother. I am more driven to love you by my nature than a mother for her child. In a greater way, he says, my love is helpful. I don't just nourish you, I empower you supernaturally. In a greater way, his love is relational. He's not just your carer, he's your creator. In a greater way, his love is unconditional. His promise is not based on our performance. As the child did nothing to earn the sacrificial love of the mother, so we cannot earn the love of God. God says, that's how I relate to you. So that when you see the pain of the nearest and dearest on earth forsake you, let it be a reminder that I will never forsake you. We need to wait with honesty, but we also need to wait with humility. As we come to God's word, ask yourself this. Do you allow the word of God to challenge you? Like if you're in a season of waiting and struggle and despair right now, come to the word of God. Keep coming to the word of God. Allow the truth of God to challenge you. Maybe you should even pray like, God, in what way am I missing it here? In what way am I overstepping in my assumption? God, would you please correct me? Approach the word of God like that. And not just allow what we feel, though it might be real, to be mistaken for the ultimate truth. Remember Paul? When he said, we felt, he was honest, we felt as if we received the sentence of death. He concludes that thought in the next sentence of that same chapter. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9. Indeed, we had felt we'd received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I love that. It's honesty and humility. I feel like like I'm just in the throes of death, and yet I am not going to trust in myself. I'm going to trust in God who raises the dead. The feeling in our hearts does not change the truth of God. If I feel lonely, it does not mean that I've been left. 
In our waiting, we often claim that we see everything. But then we come to the word of God and we ask, God, if I overstepped in my assumptions, correct me. We need humility in our waiting. But that's not all. Those two things alone will not change you in your waiting. We need to wait with honesty, emotional honesty, about what's really going on. God allows that and invites that. We also need to wait with humility, remembering that he is God and we are not. And we do not see the whole picture. And we must be careful about the conclusions and assumptions that we jump to. But here's the thing that really changes us. Thirdly, we wait with hope. We wait with real hope. And this gets to the heart of our waiting. Because of the final act in these three verses, God doesn't just answer, he provides evidence for why we should trust him in our waiting. And so he says in verse 16, see, come look, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. We wait with hope. Why? Because we have a God who has acted in history and provides evidence for us to assure us. This is not about some generic sense of hope that people often talk about during the Christmas holidays. I'm always reminded when I watch Home Alone, as I do every year, because I'm a faithful Christian. It's a liturgy in our house. And there's this great scene, if you've seen the movie, and who hasn't, when Kevin McAllister, who's home alone, his mom is desperately trying to find her way back from Paris, trying to get airline tickets. And when she can't seem to get a seat, she's so determined that she says to the attendant, like, this is the season of perpetual hope. That's what a lot of people believe in this season. Hope is just being really optimistic. Like if we can mind will things to happen, just keep on believing like the journey song says. (laughs) But listen, if your trust is in the airlines, you're doomed. If your trust is in world governments, it's over. We're not talking about generic sense of optimism We are talking about hope that is anchored in a God who has actually acted in history and he will act again. That's Christian hope. So what is he presenting to Israel and what does it foreshadow for us? In verse 16, he says, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Might sound strange to us, but this practice was common particularly amongst ancient servants and masters. The servants would have the master's name engraved upon their hands that they might remember. There are two reasons for that. One, it was a picture of permanence, but it was also a picture of nearness. It was a picture of permanence. It's ever before you. If you have a name like engraved on the hand, Everywhere you go, the name goes, right? But it's also a picture of nearness. Your name is as close to you as you are to yourself. And that's what God is saying. It's, this is, a, this is a, an evidence of permanence. Like, 
Your name is ever before me. Wherever I go, you go. And your name is as close to me as I am to myself. He holds out his hands for inspection. Now you might say, in what way has God acted? What is this evidence of? Well, we find the answer, of course, in the fulfillment of what God always promised, the coming of Jesus Christ. The answer is in the gospel. See, this is what's spectacular about this, this image and the fulfillment of Christ. Though it was the practice of the servant to be branded by the master, in this case, God inscribed, it's the other way around. It's the name of the servant inscribed on the hand of the master. See, this leads us to the truth of the gospel. Instead of Israel rising up to meet the master's need, God, who is the master, he takes the place of the servant. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's about God stooping down, coming down, sending his only begotten son to become the ultimate sacrificial servant for us all. God always promised a servant would come and not only take them out of exile, but save the whole world from exile, from judgment of sin. See, the truth is that we're the ones who have forsaken God. We're the ones who have forgotten God. But instead of him meeting us with judgment, he meets us with salvation and he pays the price for us, not only living on our behalf, but dying on our behalf, all the way to the point where he's dying on a cross for our sin so that now in our season of waiting and in the midst of our depression and our struggle, when we question his love for us, Jesus holds out his hands for inspection. And what do we see? The wounds of his love, his nail-pierced hands. Charles Spurgeon reflecting on how Christ fulfills this image of God in Isaiah beautifully says, Jesus can give nothing, he can take nothing, he can do nothing, he can hold nothing without remembering his people. Through the gospel, it is not only possible to be in a relationship with God, and not only to be forgiven of all of our sin so that we're no longer under his wrath and just judgment, but that you become near to him, beautiful to him. So again, the irony is, it's not that God forgets, it's that we forget. And to remind us, it is this demonstration of sacrificial love, the evidence of sacrificial love that he holds before us over and over again. And then there's that last line about the walls. You're like, what do we do with that? Said, Your walls are ever before me. The walls were the evidence to the Israelites of their sin and their brokenness and the consequence, which was destruction. The broken down walls 
when they looked at those broken down walls, they said, well, they're still broken down. So he must have forgotten us or forsaken us. And indeed, when we read what the Bible says about sin and destruction, it's no surprise that we see destruction everywhere. And yet God says to us, it is through my sacrificial love and the sending of my son that you can have confidence of full restoration. If God did not forsake me and if he did not forsake you when you deserved judgment, how much more will he be with you now? He says, my own wounds are the evidence of it. You may have a lot of questions about your season of waiting and your season of despair. I have a lot of questions. My wife and I have gone through very difficult seasons. I have a lot of questions. But I know what the answer cannot be to my suffering. The answer cannot be that he doesn't love me. The answer cannot be that he's forsaken me. When I look to the cross, the answer cannot be that he's forgotten me. He says, my wounds are the evidence. If this is how he sees, then this is how we must see. And this hope should lead us to act. As Isaiah said earlier to Israel, in the midst of your waiting, you need to live in accordance with God as you wait. Isaiah 26, 8. Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desires of our hearts. Acknowledging the waiting, I'm gonna tell people about what you've done. So you and I, as we wait, keep doing what you ought to be doing. Pray, seek the Lord, live as he has called you to live, even when you do not see fulfillment yet of what you're waiting for. Keep on walking, keep on praying, keep on trusting. And when you see difficulty around you and when it doesn't seem to go away, remember, he did not promise that we wouldn't see destruction, but that destruction will never have the last word. Jesus has the last word. And he says, in the midst of it all, I am with you. I see what you see. But with an unbreakable love, I'm gonna carry you through all the way to what you do not yet see. Future glory. To those of you who have forsaken God or forgotten God, or maybe you've never trusted in him and his gospel in the first place, today is an opportunity in whatever it is that you're waiting for, to turn to him and to trust him. That's called repentance. Accept Jesus Christ if you have not yet done so as your Lord and your Savior. He holds out his hands as evidence. He says, look at what I've done for you on the cross to save you from the one thing that could ultimately destroy you. If you are a Christian, but you've just forgotten or forsaken God, you've started drifting away from him in your waiting, return to him. To those who feel that they've been forgotten by God, trust him. Remember what he's done for you. Remember anew and afresh. Jesus gave us this symbol of remembrance 
the communion elements that are here on the stage, the bread and the cup representing Christ's body broken and his blood shed. The practice he told us to do again and again. He said, do this in what? Remembrance of me. God's like, I'm not the one that's gonna forget. You guys are the ones that are gonna forget. So I'm gonna give you a practice that you're to do all the time because I know you're gonna forget. And as we take the bread and the cup, we remember again his wounded hands, his nail-scarred hands, feet, wounded head, his death on the cross. And as we do and as we come to him in faith and repentance, we are cleansed of our sin. The truth pushes out our assumptions and courage comes into our heart. That's why Charles Wesley, one of the great hymnists, on this very theme of Isaiah, this is the verse he wrote in his hymn. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands, my name written on his hands. You are not forsaken. He has acted on your behalf and he will act on your behalf. You are not forgotten. His thoughts towards you are more than the sands of the sea. So because he listens to you, pray and be honest. Because he speaks, let us hear what he has to say. And because he's acted, let us trust and let us worship in our waiting. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have already acted on our behalf. The cross is the proof that you have not forsaken us, you have not forgotten us, but redeemed us. And so I pray that we would respond with repentance and faith that we would turn away from thinking that we know it all, we know how it's all gonna end, our presumption, but that we would turn back to you and say, God, this is how I feel, but I'm gonna trust in your truth. I'm gonna trust in what you have done. I pray for those who need encouragement, that Holy Spirit, you would fill their heart with the love of God, that they are not forgotten. You see them. You watch every part of their life and you care. And so I pray that as we respond now and we take communion, that we'd remember the evidence of your great love for us and that we trust in you anew and afresh that we might be changed as we wait. And if there's anyone here who's never trusted in the gospel, we pray that today they would trust in Jesus Christ, saying, Jesus, save me. Save me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done for me on the cross. Spirit of God, would you move now as we respond in Jesus' name? Amen.